is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to read uh, the first 23 verses of Acts chapter 12 as we're going to look at it this morning. You'll find the book of Acts, of course, after the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament, and then Romans, um, definitely towards the second half of your Bible. Acts 12, if you don't have a Bible, again, I, I say this often, but we really, I say it because we mean it. If you don't have a Bible in your possession, um, well, this, if you didn't bring one this morning, you can use the one in the pews. If you don't have a Bible at all, take that Bible home with you. We would like for you to have a copy of God's uh, Word. Uh, while you're turning there, I'll just mention two things quickly, too. I was sorry not to have been here last week for worship uh, to hear Scott open Galatians 2. Some people thought that I said to him Sunday morning, I'm not going to be there, you're up. Uh, and that he got that much notice. Actually, that was planned, and uh, I um, am sorry that I missed it for uh, that reason, this opening of Galatians 2. The second thing I wanted to mention is that uh, we just concluded, again, since it's early February now, our uh, fifth year, maybe, of Man U, our fifth year. Uh, Scott and I, at the end of Man U, we always say, I can't believe they keep coming back. Uh, and uh, we're really appreciative of your enthusiasm for that ministry that we do in uh, January, and many of you invite friends, and that's just a tremendous encouragement to us, uh, and we are grateful. Now, Acts chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Acts 12, 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood at the guard to guard the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, quick, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what was, the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by himself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet, 
and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and, and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, Herod, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man! Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we have your book open before us, and we recognize with joy that it is a living book. You speak to us through it. Uh, we, we anticipate as we consider these words hearing from you. Um, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth. So, through your word, uh, as I seek to unfold it and explain it, would you speak to us? I'm grateful to you for these dear uh, men and women. They have uh, braved frigid temperatures to be here. Uh, warm our hearts and minds with the truths that are here. Feed us. You're a good shepherd. Uh, you lead us to green pastures. You make us to lie down beside still waters so that you can provide for us. Um, and we do ask that you would feed us. Set before us, Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might see him in his supreme glory, and that seeing him we might love him, and that our hearts would be changed, and we would delight in him uh, more than in anything else that this world has to offer for us. Thank you for those who are serving this morning in the nursery and in children's church there. They're sacrificing their opportunity to hear your word so that they can um, rock babies and uh, care for two- and three-year-olds and, and young children. And we are grateful to you for them and the sacrifices that they have made on our behalf. Uh, we pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Uh, twice uh, since the beginning of the year, I have had the opportunity to go to two local Christian schools for Pastor's Day. I go to the Christian schools, and uh, one of the, the things that I love to be able to do is to meet with these students, uh, sometimes in their classrooms, the students from our church who go to these schools. And one of the questions that I always ask in the course of time talking to these students is, I say, what is your favorite subject? And uh, according to informal research that I have done in asking this question dozens of times, uh, in all sorts of school environments, the two answers, the two most common answers to this question, what is your favorite subject, are recess and lunch. Yeah, you're getting good money out of that Christian school tuition. So, um, <laughs> well, if recess is good, that's fine. 
Uh, we didn't have a formal recess in my school when I was growing up. So if, some, if you had asked me when I was in school, I would have told you lunch and history. Now, I still like history, but I have discovered over the years uh, that what I really like about history is not so much timelines and battle stories and, uh, or battle scenes or geography or the intricacies of the economy and how it fluctuates. What I really like about history, and if you like history at all, maybe this is one of the things you like about it too, is I like to learn about the people that populate history. I like to learn about um, how they handled various challenges and various tests and what choices they made and what sacrifices they made and and, uh, how they responded to their failures and how they responded to their successes. Um, What made them the sort of people they were? And with that in mind, I want to talk to you about three people for just a moment here uh, as we begin. I want to take you back a few years. You know, I think, at least one of them and maybe two of them already. Um, the first one, though, died 70 years ago this month. He died on February 21st, 1945, and his name was Eric Little. You know Eric Little. Uh, you know him from the, the movie Chariots of Fire. He ran in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. Uh, his signature event was a 100-meter race. Unfortunately for him, the heats, qualifying heats for that race were on a Sunday. He refused to run on a Sunday, so uh, he ran the 400-meter instead. No one expected him to win, but surprisingly, with a great theme song and even running in slow motion, he was able to <laughs> conquer and win. Now, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but uh, Eric Little actually was born in China. Um, Eric Little's parents were missionaries with the London Missionary Society. He was born in China, and as you'll find out in a minute, he died in China. Um, And actually, in some literature from uh, the Chinese Olympic Committee, they list Eric Little as the first great Chinese Olympic athlete. Well, um, he, uh, after the Olympics... He uh, finished his studies at the University of Edinburgh and returned to China. He served as a missionary. He was a teacher of uh, school children for a Chinese ruling elite. And from 1925 to 1941, he was there, and he had a very faithful and fruitful ministry. In 1941, because of increased Japanese aggression, the British consulate advised all of the uh, British expatriates living in China to leave. Eric Little sent his wife and his children home, and he stayed there. In 1943, he was imprisoned by the Japanese in a prisoner of war camp. Um, He was there with other missionaries, some of them from the China Inland Mission, which Hudson Taylor had founded. And he was there, I found this interesting, you might not. He was there uh, from, with missionaries too from a school in the city of Chefu, which my great-grand-aunt founded in the late 1800s. Uh, the internment in this Chinese, uh, Japanese, actually, prisoner of war camp was as bad as you could expect. Not enough food, not enough medicine, not enough shelter. Um, and these were a group of missionaries, but the pressure made this an unpleasant place to be. There was uh, rivalries and factions. And Eric Little, even in the midst of that, though, demonstrated to himself that he was a, a selfless person. Everybody knew about Eric Little in this camp and the, the unique qualities about him. He uh, died, uh, as I said, at age 43 uh, on February 21st, 1945, five months before liberation, and he actually died from a brain tumor, an inoperable brain tumor uh, that had taken over his, in his skull. 
The last words that he supposedly said were, it's complete surrender. Now, the second person that I want to tell you about was a man a little bit older than Eric Little. Um, he was born on November 1st, 1887. His name was William Borden. Do you know about William Borden? William Borden was the heir to the great Borden uh, wealth, the, the, the Borden company that, that uh, sweetened condensed milk, you know, Borden. Uh, that was his family. When he was seven years old, his mother became a follower of Jesus and started taking him faithfully to church in church in Chicago that eventually became Moody Church. And uh, he himself then became a follower of Jesus and committed himself to serve again in China. He went to Yale, graduated from Yale, and uh, he was going to China on his way, traveling there. And his goal was there's a large population of Muslims, there was at the time, in northern China, and no one was sharing the gospel with them. So that was his goal. He made it to Cairo, Egypt, where he uh, contracted cerebral meningitis and died in Egypt before he got there. He was 25 years old. Uh, he, he's really well known, uh, William Borden is, for what he, what he wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible. Maybe you, this is how you know him. He wrote this, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Now the third person I want to tell you about uh, is the oldest of all of them. Her name is Ann Judson. Ann Judson's picture used to hang in my office next to that of her husband, Adoniram Judson. She was born on December 22nd, 1787. She and her husband, Adoniram, were among the first foreign missionaries ever to leave the United States. They left in 1812 to go to Burma. She delivered in her life three children. The first one was born on the ship and was born stillborn. Uh, they buried him at sea. Second child was named Roger. He lived eight months. And her third child, Maria, lived six months longer than her mother. She outlived Anne by six months. If we had time, I could tell you a little bit more about her. Uh, Ann Judson used to write a lot about their experiences in Burma, and she made Adoniram because of her writings and how well they were and how, how, how much they were spread in the United States. They were among the first and most prominent celebrities in the United States because of the work that they, had, they were doing. Uh, she was the first Protestant to translate any of the Bible into the Thai language, uh, and she died at eight, in 1826. She was 37 years old from smallpox. I wonder about these scenes as I think about these three people. 43 years old, 25 years old, 37 years old. None of those are long lifespans. You know, and I wonder why God would allow these three people who seem to have so much potential... Why did he allow them, why was it part of his plan that they would die so young and not survive their diseases? I can think of a lot of people who lived a lot longer who are, were certainly less useful, by my estimation. Um, these stories actually make me think of a poem by Joe Bailey. I read this last year at the um, uh, sunrise service. I love uh, Joe Bailey's poems. Joe Bailey lost one of his sons, actually lost uh, three of his four sons or four of his five, I can't remember, before their 25th birthday. And he wrote this poem. It's called A Psalm on the Death of an 18-Year-Old Son. Listen to what he wrote. What waste, Lord. 
This ointment precious here outpoured is treasure great beyond my mind to think. For years until this midnight it was safe, contained, awaiting careful use. Now broken, wasted, lost. The world is so poor, so poor it needs each drop of such a store. This treasure spent might feed a multitude for all their days and then yield more. This world is poor, it's poorer now. The treasure's lost. I breathe its lingering fragrance. Soon even that will cease. What purpose served? The act is void of reason, sense. Lord, madmen do such things, not sane. The sane man hoards his treasure, spends with care, if good, to feed the poor or else to feed himself. Let me alone, Lord. You've taken from me what I'd give your world. I cannot see such, I cannot see such waste that you should take what poor men need. You have a heaven full of treasure. Could you not wait to exercise your claim on this? Oh, spare me, Lord. Forgive that I may see beyond this world, beyond myself, your sovereign plan. Or seeing not may trust you, spoiler of my treasure. Have mercy, Lord. Here is my quick claim. I wonder what lines William Borden's parents could have written after they received news that his, their son had died in Cairo. We just read this chapter of the Bible from Acts chapter 12. It begins with a similar story. My translation, there are 13 words in verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. This is the first apostolic martyr. He's probably somewhere around 40 years of, old, uh, of age. He's John's brother, and here he is, dead. Now, uh, following this is another story. It's a much happier story, isn't it? It's a story of, about Peter. And if verse 2 were not here, wouldn't the rest of the story read a little bit differently? Um, verse 3, Peter's been arrested. It's been about 10 years since that major persecution that broke out in Acts chapter 9. Um, now the gospel, I wonder if it's spreading to Antioch, and I wonder if this is making some of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem more upset. So Peter's arrested. James is executed. Peter's arrested. The church prays earnestly. God responds. He rescues Peter. Uh, and not only that, he judges the king who locks Peter up. Now, you could tell this story a certain way, couldn't you? This story, Acts chapter 12, you could tell this a certain way. Uh, this is how I hear that certain telling of the story in my mind. Right? Um, somebody might be able to stand up behind a pulpit and say something like this, Brothers and sisters! Uh, that warble, I, rem I hear it from the southern traveling evangelists that I used to, to hear. They're on television still, aren't they? Right? Brothers and sisters, you yourself may be locked up in a prison of despair. No happiness, no joy, locked between, on the one hand, chains of sorrow, and on the other, chains of pain. But if you will pray earnestly, faithfully, diligently, God will rescue you. 
He will deliver you and set you high above all of your enemies. He will rescue you, prosper you, heal you, comfort you, deliver you. All you need to do is ask him today. <laughs> now that would preach, right? That'd be a good sermon to have an offering after that one, right? Pass the plates. But the problem is there's verse 2 at the beginning of the story, isn't there? James is dead. Peter's free, but James is dead. What do we do with that? Now, I suppose you could take another look at this passage, right? You could read this passage very cynically, couldn't you? You could say, what well, starts, Herod kills James, but you know what happens at the end? God kills Herod. God gets his, his revenge in the end. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's a bleak way to read this passage, though, isn't it? Doesn't that make God seem very small? And, and it, I don't think it takes into account what it says in verse 24. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. There's more than just revenge going on here in this passage. I want to think with you about this passage on a couple of different levels. I want to read this passage, first of all, on a personal level. What does it say to us individually as followers of Jesus Christ? And then I want to think about this passage more globally, more broadly, taking into account the whole story of the book of Acts and, in fact, the whole mission that the church has been on since Jesus commissioned us in A.D. 33. This mission to testify about Jesus to the ends of the earth. So let's think about it, first of all, on a personal level. Here's what it says. One thing, following Jesus Christ puts you in danger. Following Jesus Christ puts you in danger. I know that verse 2, this is one verse from one scene in Acts, but I'm going to build this. The principle is fleshed out enough in the New Testament that it deserves our attention. This is a story of how James was martyred and how Peter was arrested, again, as followers of Jesus. Now, let's think about this James here, who this is. This is James, the brother of John. This is not James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, is the James that Peter talks about later in Acts 12, um, what, verse 17. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters. That's James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the epistle of James, who became a follower of Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. The James who's executed in verse 2 is a different James. He's the James whose brother was John, John who wrote the Gospel of John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Um, James who went, actually sent his mother, sent his mother to talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, when you come to your kingdom, could you put one of my sons on one side and one of my sons on the other? And you remember what Jesus said? Um, Those places are not mine to give. And will you, are they able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? That is, Will they be able to suffer like I'm going to suffer? Here's, it happened, right? Uh, James is executed here. John is exiled. Jesus' words coming true. We see here in very stark terms, black and white, uh, you may not suffer this same way, but following Jesus Christ puts you in danger. It always costs you something. In fact, One of the ways that you can tell that your relationship with Christ is real is by listing how it costs you. It might cost you a a friendship. 
might cost you smooth relationship with a brother or a sister. might cost you money. might cost you your job. It might cost you your business. If you are a cake baker in Colorado and you will not bake a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage and the government shuts you down, it costs you something to follow Jesus Christ. Now, there's a question in this text uh, that uh, we have to ask. It's a question of contrast, right? Why did James die, but Peter was rescued? Why did that happen that way? This reminds me, I think, of a little bit of Hebrews 11. You know, Hebrews 11 is the great faith chapter in the Bible. It tells the story of people who walked by faith and did amazing things. Uh, look here, I printed out some of the um, that note sheet in your Bible, uh, in your bulletin. I printed out some of the... Uh, uh, passages, uh, verses from Hebrews 11. Look what it says, verse 32. (coughs) And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead back to life. And, and I read that and I say, yeah, this is what walking by faith means. I'm in. This is great. But then he doesn't even stop. He doesn't miss a beat. There's not even a verse break, right? As it continues, look, it says, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. James They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Why is James the second half of this paragraph in Hebrews 11, and Peter is the first half of this paragraph, at least in Acts chapter 12? Why is that? I consulted some of the, the, the world's foremost experts in the book of Acts, and they said, if they answered the question at all, if the reason James was, uh, was killed and Peter was freed is the mystery of providence. That is not a completely satisfying answer to me. And we love God's providence. That, that's not what's unsatisfying to me. God's providence is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But I have questions about the details. Why James and not Peter? You probably want more details too sometimes, don't you? Why did your husband get cancer and died, but your friend in your Bible study, her husband beat the cancer that he had? What did James' wife think about all of this? I don't know if James was married or not. I know Peter was married. The Bible talks about Peter's wife. But if James had a wife, how much time did she spend thinking, why James and not Peter? It's not always death, but following Jesus Christ puts you in danger. It will cost you something. Unless, of course, you are foolish enough to think that you can strategize your life so that it doesn't cost you anything, which begs the question, who are you really serving? (coughs) Here's a a second idea that emerges from this text on a personal level. Uh, Resisting God puts you in danger Two, 
Resisting God puts you in danger. I want you to think for a minute about the Herod in this story. Now, we're very familiar with Herods. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. The Herod mentioned here is not the same Herod that killed all those babies in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. It's not. That was Herod the Great. This Herod is uh, Herod Agrippa. He's, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Um, he was the most popular member of the Herodian family. And he seems, I think, to be interested in maintaining this popularity and enhancing this popularity. Um, I think that's what verse 3 seems to indicate. Uh, He's a glory hound, isn't he, this Herod? When he saw that this met with approval, he seized Peter also. Then there's a scene, this glory hound scene at the end of chapter 12. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are two city, city regions on, on the north, and they're on the Mediterranean. And, and right next to them, more inland, Herod controlled the land there. And Tyre and Sidon needed food from this area, and Herod controlled the, the uh, trade. So uh, there was controversy, but they wanted, they wanted to be on Herod's good side. So they, they uh, bribed one of Herod's officials named Blastus. Eh, he sounds like a character from a video game, doesn't he? Blastus. Um, they, they bribe Blastus to get, to get on the, the king's good side, and, and there's going to be this official day of peace, and Herod comes out wearing his royal robes. Now, um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us about this. This is one of the places where Josephus' history follows the Bible very carefully. And Josephus says that Herod wore silver-colored robes. Boy, if it was bright. Can you imagine how he, he glowed? Um, some people think that maybe Herod was playing into uh, some of the other traditions of this area where the kings would present themselves as godlike figures and they would wear bright, shiny clothes. Maybe that's what's going on. Herod, Herod comes and they acclaim him as, as a god. Verse 22, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. He took God's glory for himself. God struck him dead. Uh, in 1945, after uh, the uh, soldiers had returned from their military service, baseball stadiums started filling again. And one of those returning soldiers uh, was a man by the name of, you know him, Joe DiMaggio. Well, when Joe DiMaggio first walked into Yankee Stadium, he wanted to go uh, just as a fan first, and he took his son, Joe DiMaggio Jr., with him, and they went into the mezzanine to watch a baseball game. Well, uh, the crowds there started to recognize Joe DiMaggio, and they started chanting, Joe, Joe DiMaggio, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. And Joe DiMaggio was very um, humbled and appreciative and very happy to be back. And he looked down at his son to see if his son had noticed what the crowd was, was doing. And his son looked at him and said, Look, Daddy, everybody knows me. That's a cute story about a confused little boy. What we have here in Acts 12 is a very sad story uh, about a rebellious, petulant, vain king. And an angel of the Lord turns Herod's insides out in discipline. Now, what's the difference between James and Herod? Um, they're both dead at the end of this passage. The difference between the two of them is what, why they died, or perhaps more expensively, what they were living for. 
that the difference? The New Testament is not unclear about what happened to these men immediately after they died. James, as Paul said, being absent from the body is present with the Lord. It's far better, he said, Paul said, to depart and to be with Christ. But Herod faced nothing but the prospect of terrible judgment. We have a strange attitude toward death, don't we? On the one hand, we hate death. Death is the enemy. Death is the final consequence of life in this world, of our alienation from God. God had promised Adam and Eve in the garden the day they ate of the fruit uh, of the tree that he told them not to, that they would die. Death is the consequence of rebellion against God. It is a, literally a tearing apart of a human being, body from soul. It's a torn asunder at death. We hate death. But at the same time, death for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, opens us to a world that is better by far. So that it makes sense for us to sing songs like, It is not death to die. The Bible tells us that by his death and through his suffering on the cross, Christ bore the consequences for our sin. He was torn in part, torn in two. He was cleft for us. And those who turn to him in dependent faith are not promised freedom from physical death, but we are granted reprieve and release from spiritual death, from this alienation from God and from bearing God's wrath for eternity. Think about this. When he died, Herod lost everything, didn't he? He lost his silver robes. He lost his crown. He lost all the comfort that he had. He lost his position, his royal authority. He lost everything. When James died, he gained everything. I wonder what you're living for and whether it will outlast the inevitable day of your death. Kathy and I are going to a conference together in Florida in April. And because of the distance and the time, we've been making plans a little bit here and there for it. And I have a file in my uh, my bag that, that is marked April Conference. And whenever I make any plans, I drop the, the sheet in that file where it talks about our hotel reservations and eventually we'll put our, our flight information in there. This is, this is our future for us, this file for a week that's going to determine our lives and we're, we're planning for it. I wonder what you're putting in the file of your life that's marked eternity. What, what goes in there? What plans that you, you, are you making? What are you setting aside? Uh, how are you investing now for that inevitable day? Those are questions that you should a- ask as you read this chapter, as you read as an individual, seeing, seeking to figure out what this, this story means on a personal level, level. But I think there's perhaps something even more important in this passage for us as we think about this story corporately as a, as a group, as a, as a congregation, as, as those who are on the mission that God has given us. It's a mission that started with Jesus and that continued through Ann Judson and William Borden and Eric Little and is our mission even now. What's the long look at this passage? I think that verse 24 is supposed to help us with that. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. What this passage is teaching us here is that the the death of James, the imprisonment of Peter, it doesn't stop God's work. It doesn't stop the mission. I think this is what Luke is trying to teach us. 
in and out of season, God's word continues to spread. In martyrdom and in rescue, God's word spreads. Through successes and failures, God's word spreads. When it's easy and when it's hard, God's word spreads. Some of you might have difficult histories with churches. It's good for you to remember this passage. Um, <laughs> a few years ago, we interviewed somebody to join the church. And uh, during the, their membership interview, uh, they said to us, you don't want me to join your church because every church that I have belonged to uh, in the last uh, 30 years, all three of them have split. Is this a promise or a threat? I'm not sure. God's word spreads. Through financial stress, when elders struggle with sin, through roadblocks, God could choose to close our church. He could do that. And it might mean a lot of different things, but I know what it would not mean. What it would not mean is that God has given up on his mission or that God's word is ineffective or that Jesus is unhappy. It does not, would not mean that Jesus is unhappy in heaven in his work of building the church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Whatever circumstances we face, ups, downs, joys, sorrows, God's word spreads. There's a storefront, there's a store downtown near the Lancaster Public Library. And uh, uh, several years ago, the uh, man opened a candy shop in that store. I, I know about it because it was, it was featured in the newspaper. And uh, in the newspaper, as the, the, talking about the opening of the store, this man talked about his dreams and his goals for his store. He wanted to make great candy. And he also, he had bought the whole building and was remodeling some of it because his eventual goal was that he wanted to have young men who were uh, on the verge of crisis, people who were, um, had maybe been in some sort of trouble but needed help, um, that they were going to come and live there. He was going to provide them with a place to live and a place to work in the candy shop so that he could... This is part of his commitment to Christ. He wanted to disciple them and encourage them and provide them with a way to make money and a place to live. Uh, the enterprise closed after a couple of years. It's a coffee shop now, I think. I think about that man and his vision, his goals, which sounded so good to me. Every time I go to the library, I see that, that coffee shop that's there. And I think about that man. He, he did what he thought was was right in, in following Christ, and it, it didn't, didn't work, apparently. Successes and failures, God's word spreads and flourishes. I recently listened to a, a sermon overviewing some of the, the chapters in the book of uh, Revelation. You know, Revelation 2 and 3, you know how this story goes. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 has letters that were written to churches, significant, prominent, world-changing churches, and all of them are located in what is today modern-day Turkey. The church was growing and flourishing there when the book of Revelation was written. Today, of 73 million Turks, about 163,000 of them, 2.2% are Christians. What happened? Successes, failures, ups, downs, death of an apostle, rescue of an apostle, growth of the church, abandonment of the gospel in a region, God's word spreads and flourishes. It's one of the reasons that we keep going is our confidence is not in our ability or our uniqueness as 
Grace Baptist Church. Our confidence is in the supremacy of God's word. God buries his workmen, but he doesn't bury his work. In season and out of season. Now, um, there's one last question from the church here that, that we should ask. What do we do in the meantime with this? What do we do with what might be great fluctuations and changes and, and cycles? Notice this here. In season and out of season, God's people turn to him. God's people turn to him. Here again in chapter 12, uh, we find the church at prayer. When Peter was arrested, this is interesting. When Peter was arrested, they didn't riot. They didn't call their congressman. They didn't have a congressman to call. They didn't start a petition drive. Uh, They didn't have a public vigil. They didn't take hostages. They did actually the most powerful thing that they could have done. They prayed. This enormous confidence in God, this enormous confidence in God explains why Peter is sleeping. (laughs) How many of you on the night before your trial that might... uh, well, James, your friend, has just been executed, and here you are in the Festival of Unleavened Bread. That was the same time of year that Jesus was crucified, and it's the night before your trial, and here you are in prison, two people chained, and you're going to get a good night's sleep. What do apostles do when you lock them in prison? They sleep or sing, one or the other. That's what happens in the book of Acts. Oh, it's enormous confidence in God. Now, what is this church praying for? I don't think they're praying for Peter's rescue. I think that, se- that seems clear to me based on, on uh, how the passage sh- works, right? Because when Peter's set free, they don't believe that he's set free. If they were praying for his freedom and he shows up free and they don't believe it, they're not very faithful prayers, right? Something's wrong. I don't think that's what they're praying for. It's part of the humor of the passage. So Peter gets out and he goes to Mary's house. And why does he go to Mary's house? Mary apparently... Uh, Mark, she's, she's Mark's mother, Mark, the gospel writer, Mark, most likely, um, has a big house. And uh, it's a house that's big enough for the church, or at least a portion of the church, to meet in. Uh, why is Peter going there? Maybe because, I don't know, he has a suitcase there. He's going to get out of town. And he's going to go pick up some things at Mary's house and run. Or he's going to go at least tell Mary, spread the word, hang up a poster, I'm free, but I'm leaving. So he goes to the house, and uh, he knocks on the door. James has been executed, some of them have been arrested, Peter's been arrested, and the church is gathering to pray, and it's at night, the middle of the night, and you hear a knock at the door. Who, who could that be? Herod's secret police? Well, um, they, they, send, they send Peter, uh, they send Rhoda to the door. Who is it? It's me, Peter. Right? She's so excited, she can't even open the door. She runs back in. It's Peter. It's Peter. He's at the door. He's, he's free. And they say, what? What? You're crazy. We say this to our dog sometimes. And our dog is too excited. You're crazy. Right? Rhoda, there's no chance. No, no chance. Apparently, again, they're not praying for a miraculous release. If they were, right, they would have said, ah, God's answered our prayers. It's exactly what we wanted. Instead, they think she's crazy. Well, Peter knocks at the door again. They let him in, and they're so excited. Peter, shh. James has been executed. 
people have been arrested. I've been arrested. I'm free. And you guys are being too noisy in this neighborhood. Shh. I'm running away. I'm, I'm leaving. Now, the church prays. The church prays. They do the same thing in chapter 13, verse 1. They pray. They pray. Through ins and outs, ups and downs, successes and failures, God's people pray. They are concerned. They are concerned about the mission. Maybe they had been praying that Peter would get a, free, a fair trial. Maybe they were praying that somehow the judge would let Peter go. Maybe that, that's what they were praying for. But they're, they're dependent on God through all of these changing circumstances that they are enduring. We're going to talk about this more next week. I'm going to, in fact, later this week I'm going to regret saying now what I'm going to say to you. Because I want to say the same thing next Sunday. I hope that one of the consequences of our study of the book of Acts because we see these brothers and sisters gathering together to ask God to be at work and to continue his mission, one of the things that I hope happens in our church is that you, every single one who is a part of our congregation, will commit themselves to regularly praying with someone who's part of our church. It could be weekly. It could be every other week. It could be a prayer meeting on Wednesday night or Thursday morning. It could be in your growth group or your mentoring group. And I hope that you commit yourself not to just praying for your own concerns, but praying for the spreading and the flourishing of God's word. We're going to talk more about how to do that next week. But this is what God's people do. In and out of season, we turn to him and ask him to be at work. Seasons of growth and prosperity and seasons of loss and grief and revival and vision. In days when you wonder if the church is going to stay open, we turn to him. It's what we do. Now, China is the land on which uh, Eric Little and William Borden set their sights. Eric Little was there for 20 years, and not that long ago. He did not see mass conversions. He didn't see significant changes, and Borden never actually made it to China. But, you know, it's estimated that now, by the year 2025, there will be 169 million Christians in China. There's about 170 people who use the term Christian to describe themselves in the United States. Uh, And very soon, China is going to be the largest Christian nation in the world. There are already more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party. Some of them meet in large sanctioned churches. Some of them meet in secret underground meetings. God buries his workmen, but he never buries his work. You know what China's transformation tells me? God's word spreads and flourishes. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you and we ask that you would make us faithful people in the midst of the ups and downs that we experience. It it seems profane almost to call the execution of an apostle a down it's not my intention lord but you know that we will experience fluctuating things in our lives remind us of the supremacy of your call and the wisdom of your plans the greatness of your power that that your word spreads and flourishes it is not undone by vain kings and is not undone by martyred apostles. It's not undone by fleeing apostles or, or 
servant girls who, who get confused in their joy. Your work is not undone. Grant that we might be faithful, serving under you, you, Father, who call us to follow your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Please stand again as we sing, O Church, Arise.